and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Percy Hornack, and today I'm joined by Todd. Hello. And Nick. Hey there. Today we are talking about theater and the apocalypse. So one of the first things we want to talk about um, is when we're discussing theater and the apocalypse, like what does that even mean? Does something have to be set after the end of the world for it to be about the apocalypse? Does it only have to be after a great upheaval? Um, in in our uh, Dungeons and Dragons and theater episode, um, we talked a bit about how like there isn't a lot of a fantasy that we like to put on our stages. And I think this also applies to like science fiction and speculative fiction. Um, like you'll see it here and there among certain things, notably, of course, Mr. Burns, um, among others. And there's also a wide range of ideas about what counts as an apocalypse play. Um, we asked this question on Twitter and a lot of people chimed in. Um, and some people felt like, you know, plays about Trump were apocalyptic. And I'm not sure that I'd agree with that necessarily. Although you could have a play about an apocalypse caused by Trump where like the world actually ended because he started World War Three or something. But none of those are the plays that were sent to us. Uh, the, the man in inherently is not apocalyptic on his own. Um, yeah. Yeah. On his on his own. Um, and so I was thinking as we were trying to assemble um, this conversation and this episode about a play that's very near and dear to my heart, Wellesley Girl, um, which is set like 200 years from now in a suburb outside Boston um, that is one of the last remaining bastions of humanity, or so they think, um, that like after an algal bloom like poisoned the water um, worldwide almost. Um, this community has like lived on their own and has tried to be the United States for a hundred or so years on their own. And then I believe it's the Texas Christian theocratic yurt army or something like that. Sounds right. Um, shows up at their door claiming to be the true United States and demanding like over a hundred years in back taxes. Um, and it's a very weird but very fascinating play. Um, Brendan Pels, who wrote it, uh, who is a playwright that I adore. But that's one of the plays that for me is like actually about an apocalypse. And it's set um long after an apocalypse has taken place, but it it shows us a world that is similar to and very different from our own after like a cataclysmic upheaval, whether that's man-made or nature or something in between. Um, and I think for me, that's something that I think like in my brain needs to happen for something to be apocalyptic. Um, but Percy, what do you think? Um, for me, I think it's, I, I, yeah, I think it needs to be some kind of massive, horrible revelatory event that that you classify as an apocalypse. And I think we need to either see in the play a group of people who are grappling with systems that they've grown up knowing actively being unmade or whatever people in the future have done to either rebuild or reevaluate like how, how they have continued living when this event has kind of unmade all of the all of the things that they that they know um and i think theater about the apocalypse if you were to classify that as like its own genre i think tends to look into the future at a specific thing that we're currently grappling with or use 
an apocalyptic future is a metaphor for things that we've experienced in the past that are sources of strife or sources of tension and conflict in society and see, okay, well, what happens in the future? What happens when you play that out to one of its possible conclusions? Um, like there's, we'll certainly talk about Mr. Burns a fair amount in this episode. Cause it's like the play people think of when they're like, Oh, the apocalypse. Um, the thing I do really like about Mr. Burns, uh, is that the central question of it is like, what happens to pop culture after the world ends? And after we don't have the actual source material to look at anymore, which I think is really interesting, but you see a lot of other plays about the apocalypse that focus on like, um, on race or on the impending climate disaster or a number of other things that we, that we struggle with. But Nick, what is your definition of an apocalypse as it manifests in theater? Oh yeah. I I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head kind of Percy. Uh, I think in the, in the tradition of science fiction, apocalypse plays or novels or stories or whatever are often sort of using the future to talk about what, you know, what concerns the author or the playwright about today. Um, I, I think about the, uh, the root of the word apocalypse, the, I don't speak Greek, but I, I think it's Apocalypsis, um, which is the title of what English speakers know as the book of revelations in the Bible, because oh, the weird? origin. Oh yeah. That's where we get the word apocalypse from. Weird. Okay. I don't know that. Yeah. So yeah, the the Greek literally means. I, I think my understanding is that the literal interpretation would be an uncovering. Revelations it, is the book with all, where all the bad stuff happens, right? Yeah. It's it's the book about the end of the world. It's literally where we get the word apocalypse from to describe the end of the world. Just, just making sure because my familiarity with the Bible is <laughs> non-existent. Not high. <laughs> Fair. But no, that's that's um, I, I like the idea of and, and I think the reason that people tell stories about the end of the world um, is because it it's a way of trying to reveal something deep about human existence or about the way we live now or whatever, because at least in, in the kind of Western narrative tradition, uh, stories are understood in part by their ending. So, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of sweep of history, like where you think that's going sheds a lot of light on what the kind of what your understanding of sort of the core nature of reality of or of our society or whatever is right now. But I also think it's really interesting if you look at these all of these different plays about either set during or after an apocalypse has happened to look at what has remained um, mm-hmm. the the systems that people kind of have disposed of and the systems that people have have in fact made an effort to set back up. Um, cause you see some plays where they've reestablished like a government, um, and plays where there is, it's fucking lawless. Um, and you see barter economies or like economies in the way that we would think of economies. I think it's interesting just to see what playwrights put back in as a way of commenting on the role that that thing plays in our lives as we know them right now. One of the things that I really love about Wellesley Girl um, and it's brought up a little bit like all of the all of the people who live in this small suburb, um, there's like less than 500 of them. And since they are trying to also be the functional United States government, like when you turn 18, you automatically enter the House of Representatives and can vote on legislation because 
they are attempting as much as they are able to like keep the United States alive, even though they are literally a small town. And what the play attempts to highlight, I think, is this like friction between like small town politics and national politics because they're the same thing here. And so like that guy, Jeff, who's on town council that you hate is like also the senator that is trying to strike down all of the things that you were trying to do, which makes it a very weird place in terms of government. But I think is a fascinating look at like the idea of this American exceptionalism that like even in the midst of literally the entire country dying or so we think we this small suburb outside of Boston will try to like keep the Supreme Court, even though we only have one judge. And so she is the Supreme Court. And it's just like baffling. This is making me think of something that is a like only ten like kind of only kind of related, uh, and B skipping around a little bit. But I think that's fine, and I'm going to say it anyway. Um, which is that it like the world building of this play is so extensive, like, and that's super cool to me. And it makes me think like I'm curious about what world building you might need to do in a play that is about the apocalypse that is about kind of an imagined future that is different than you might do in a play that is set like now or in the past i think you have to do a lot more world building but i also think where you don't do world building is just as revealing as where you do in terms of like Mm -hmm. what you were talking about percy what institutions do you think survive in the apocalypse um you know i think apocalypse world the game makes a lot of kind of assumptions about what this post-apocalypse future might look like but you know there's always the question of in this post-apocalypse after the apocalypse or during the apocalypse you know is marriage still a thing in your world that just like is not something you do any world building about but you also have it existing you don't comment on it is you know the nation state still a thing i can think of at least three plays, and I think this is our our own biases, but uh, three plays, Mr. Burns, um, Scott Sickles, The Known Universe, and I think Lorraine Hansberry's What Use Our Flowers that include at least moments of like theater happening after the apocalypse. Um, and that's like, you know, I, I think that is a value statement about what is what the playwright views as either like innate or or uh of value to human life or human flourishing or possibly uh innate and corrosive depending on the the play's kind of response to it well and even like i'm stealing this line of thought from conversations that i've had with folks who were doing a production of mr burns at my graduate institution um in the spring but like in doing table work for mr burns they were like are these characters like how do we does queerness exist in the apocalypse in the way that we understand it? Because in theory, if you're existing in a post-apocalyptic world, the structures that other queer people don't exist. So is that even like, does that continue to matter? Does that exist? Um, Which I think is fascinating. Um, And like, can't really fully wrap my mind around the idea of a post-queer, a a, a (laughs) post-queer society. Um, a post-queer apocalypse. A post-queer apocalypse. Like, I frankly don't want that because being queer is amazing. However, yeah, like, I think that's another thing that is interesting to see how it, like, manifests in a, a world that is 
unlike our own that is post our own. I also feel like when I first read Mr. Burns, what was so uh, baffling to me was not the the world that we were living in in the course of the play, but the fact that the play was not about a group of people or an event, but about a world. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I haven't read many other plays that were about that. I've read a lot of plays that are after uh, a climate crisis, after another war, after a number of things where like the status quo has shifted very greatly. And so we were in a different place. But this play through its three movements decides not to follow a single person or a group of people. We we follow the idea of how a society is rebuilding over the course of what, a hundred years longer? It's like 75 plus seven. So whatever that math is, 82, 82. <laughs> yeah. Call it a hundred years. Call it a hundred um, years. Somewhere like that. But it was, it was like, I think part of what was exciting to me about the script when I first read it and what I think is exciting to a lot of people is that like, I didn't have a model for the play. Um, in terms of storytelling that I could just like map it onto and say like, I see what Anne Washburn is doing like here, here and here as we approach the climax, as we do to this, as we do to that. Um, Because it wasn't, it wasn't the traditional structures that I'm used to dealing with at all. And I thought that that was cool. She names at the beginning, she has like a, a note to the director where she's like, here's, you have to think about the fact that for these characters, like humor doesn't work the same way it does for us. They don't understand death to be the same thing that we do. It's so normalized for them. And like, they don't have these cultural touchstones. Like this is a relic. Like this is the Simpsons characters. Aren't like these funny goons. Like the Simpsons are relics of a lost age. Like it's high art. A and golden art age. Is the, and yeah, and art is the means by which you make a living, which is <laughs> harder for us now <laughs> um, than perhaps it should be. Yeah, that's a phenomenal point because as I'm thinking about it, all of the, not all the plays, most of the plays that I've read that take place or deal with an apocalypse in some way are really about people. And it's a story mm-hmm. of individuals against the backdrop of the apocalypse. And it's about them like Walden by Amy Berryman is very much a story about a pair of twins and about resentment and about loss and like there are some politics that are really interesting in that play that have to do with um, colonization and climate crisis and all of these other things that factor into their relationships but it's a play about these two sisters at its core and it just happens that the stakes of their what they each want are raised by like a horrible climate crisis and a civil war. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or like, um, so this play by Eleanor Burgess, Sparks Fly Upwards, um, I've worked on workshops of, but I don't believe it's had a full production yet um, anywhere. So it's kind of like, whatever, inside baseball, it's who a, cares? A sneak peek. Sneak peek. Um, but what she was striving to to make was like a Chekhovian caveman play was her goal. Like, what is the living room drama when the living room is a cave? What is the living room drama when we need to skin a deer for dinner? And we do that on stage. And like, what are the conversations that come up with that? Um, And then partway through, after watching these people for a short while, we realize that they are existing not thousands of years before us, 
but like hundreds, if not thousands of years after us. And after a climate crisis has like flooded the world again after the ice caps melt, um, which could happen <laughs> very soon. Very alarming. <laughs> anyway, um, but I think it's a fascinating, I think um, there's a number of plays, um, and I think Mr. Burns tries to do this in some ways, uh, that assert that we will like find a way through um, and that like arts and humanity will thrive again, um, even if there are difficult times in between. Um, even if there are a lot of people who die, um, that like the human condition is a condition that strives towards like community and communal experiences and storytelling. Um, and I find that very interesting as a as a point of view that some people who might be pessimistic about where we're going for tend to end up in their pieces. Mm hmm. And I mean, maybe that's because, like, if you end up in the other direction, like, why not just die? <laughs> I mean, I think, of course, that's that's <laughs> damn. <tough>. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was going to say, I think, of course, that's you know, b being being artists, that is, of course, the the perspective that we and probably many of these playwrights hold. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe if you asked uh, a bunch of game designers, they would be like, well, of course, there will, you know, there will be play in the apocalypse, even if it's, you know, throw stone at throw small stones at the big stone um, or whatever caveman games. But I do think there is something uh, uh, to that idea of continuing i mean it's it's the thing that we do and that we're still doing when we tell stories about the apocalypse is like continuing to narrativize our lives and like try to assemble a, a sense of them it's it's funny i was thinking um this is this is my like i'm currently in grad school showing but the structure of mr burns actually kind of reminded me of uh like medieval mystery plays mm -hmm. which i just had to read a bunch of and then i was like oh funnily enough those also end in the apocalypse um in the like traditional biblical variety i mean there's no stronger ending than the world is just done <laughs> it's my tip for all playwrights <laughs> Make the, world end on stage. Just make no the world one, end on stage. No one can accuse you of leaving open plot threads <laughs> if the entire world ends and everyone dies. What dramaturgs. Well, so like a play that I would argue is like not about the apocalypse, but perhaps um, exists during or after an apocalypse um, would be Marjorie Prime. Um, and for those of you who don't know, um, it's a play about these like new it robots um, that can look like people um, in your life that have passed away and you can tell them stories and they will like perform those stories for you and try to perform that person um, after they've died. And over the course of the play, a number of people get replaced um, by primes and it's not clear at first who has and who hasn't died yet but the final scene of the play which i think is very beautiful the 
we're like in a living room the whole time we're in a house and for the final scene like the roof has fallen in and we can see stars perhaps more stars than we're used to as like three primes perhaps hundreds and hundreds of years in the future are still telling these stories to each other even though all of the people that they once performed being alive for are now long dead um and i think there's something very fascinating in that part of the play where like jordan harrison does not talk to us about a world where uh we're facing a climate crisis or mass extinction or anything like that we just see these three people who are alive and their uh, father figure who is dead and then we slowly replace the other three humans um and then they're just alone forever um and it kind of asks a question about like what happens to these technological relics um but also implies that at some point all of humanity is just gone and doesn't doesn't seem concerned with how or why that might happen which i think opens a lot of interesting questions i mean i i think one of the questions that i was first prompted to think about in these terms by um nk jemison's book uh the fifth season is like who is it an apocalypse for um and and on what scale and with what meaning because i think it's marjorie prime feels to me like it's in dialogue with rur the carl chapik play from like 1920 where robots you know it's it's a 1920 sci-fi play so it's about robots who are like grown in vats and they're used essentially as slave labor um the same as in his novel the war with the newts um, where the newts are used as slave labor, but then the robots rise up and kill all the humans. And then they have like a crisis because they can't replicate, but eventually uh, at the end they're able to. So it's a play about an apocalypse, but it actually goes, you know, the end of the play is this scientist realizing that these two robots are like the robot Adam and Eve. I also think it's worth noting, just because I think this is a cool dramaturg, but also just pop culture fact, um, the word robot was coined in that play. Like, the word robot, as we understand it, comes from a 1921 play and not from, like, a weird sci-fi book or something else. It's from, like, a very weird play about unions and labor. <laughs> it's a creep. It's honestly a, a phenomenal play. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's you. You want to talk about like the way that apocalypse stories reflect what our uh, like concerns are? The 1920 robots replacing humans play is about uh, you know essentially a labor uprising, and the 2016. I don't remember what year Marjorie Prime came out. That play is about like robots that we welcome into our homes to like ignore our grief that then mm -hmm. end up being these semi-sentient computers just talking to each other for eternity mm -hmm. like very clear cultural moments there mm -hmm. i mean i think we also see this like distillation of like of cultural moments manifest in plays in which we like very clearly see like an apocalypse happening um like if you think about thirst by ca johnson like a race war has literally just happened, mm -hmm. which feels resonant. And there's another play, I think, where like you see identities that we currently grapple with and see come into conflict with each other 
as the direct source of of the plays of the plays conflicts and we see these things play out in a post-apocalyptic world where like that has continued to be a sticking point and that has continued to matter as opposed to plays where like otherness falls away and where identities as we currently understand them start to fall away this is a play where like those still matter Mm. perhaps even more so than they used to yeah i wonder if that has to do with when the play's relationship with with the play's like temporal relationship to the apocalypse because marianas trench um the first play in scott sickles trilogy the whole thing is called the second world trilogy and and the first play marianas trench is set almost contemporaneous with us um and similarly is about sort of uh it's about the confederate states give or take uh seceding from the u.s and forming their own like regressive theocracy um and and feels uh relevant (laughs) um uh but it is um it's not directly apocalyptic then but all of those things that we currently are thinking about matter in a way that they don't in say uh the listeners by liz duffy adams or hurt song by cara duds fitch both of which are set like in the kind of long throw future post-apocalypse yeah i always think that's interesting to see um because thirst is set like immediately after and like kind of during you could even argue Mm -hmm. well and i Um, think it's also there was a i might be misremembering this but i feel like in thirst um there's clearly like a resource war and that leads to a race war um yeah and then it's the 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 warlord character whose name is escaping me terrence terrence um he talks about how like his daughters were dying and like the white man who lived down the street from him, like clearly had more than enough and was getting resources somehow. And so he led uh, an uprising and like took over the water supply um, and he becomes the waterman. Yeah. And we see this scarcity and this, uh, like immediately coming to bear on the characters in part because um, Terrence's ex ex wife has left him and and started has has formed a relationship with a white woman and there's like lots and lots of tension because of that um, and eventually like we see his control over resources become a really big sticking point and a really big problem. Um, and I'm trying to think of other plays in which like resources specifically tend to be the are like the cause of the conflict or the cause of the apocalypse, because I think we see a ton of climate crisis plays, which makes sense. Well, and I think they are linked in many ways. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, yeah, that's I know that in in the work that we did on Eleanor's play, Sparks Fly Upwards, um, we had like very broad strokes ideas of what happened and the characters don't really know what happened. Like they know that there was a flood, um, but that's kind of, and that like people like moved away from the land kind of. Um, but in the, in the like world history of the play, it was that like sea levels rise. A lot of people move inward. Um, the farmable land shrinks and people fight wars over it. Um, and that leads to this like tension and resource war because there isn't enough space or enough food. Uh, that makes sense. Although I think we do also see some plays in which like the climate 
element or like the the natural world and its decline is is kind of the big deal and resources aren't as much of a factor like i'm thinking specifically about the children by lucy kirkwood um which is a lovely play because it's about older people as opposed to i think a lot of apocalyptic plays which are about like people in their 20s to 30s the children is basically you have this kind of slow burn reveal that they're living in a world that is like full of nuclear radiation and like nothing is safe um and they're uh, lives are pretty significantly impacted by the fact that they are surrounded by radiation. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I really love about that play by Lucy Kirkwood is it, and I'm so sorry for those of you who don't know the play, because I'm trying not to spoil it, but I kind of have to, to talk about it. Um, Skip 30 seconds ahead. (laughs) Skip 30 seconds ahead. Doop, doop, doop. Um, What I think is really fascinating about it is it is unveiled as a mystery. Like an old friend shows up on someone's doorstep and we know that something's wrong because they're like not in their home. Like that becomes apparent to us that the hosts are not in their home. They're somewhere else. But we eventually learn that like there was a nuclear cataclysm started by, I believe, an earthquake and then a flood um, that like messed things up. And we also then learn that these three people are all engineers who worked on the plant that went nuclear. Um, and so the the woman who is an old friend who is just dropping in is dropping in to enlist them to come and fix the plant because they will all die before they get radiation poisoning anyway. And the children, the young people who work in these plants will die horrible agonizing deaths before their time because they're in their like 20s and 30s and 40s um i also think it's important to note that like this is uh very clearly inspired by um the nuclear disasters that happened in japan um in 2000 i think 10 11 um i think it was that think that's right um, spring of fukushima fukushima yeah um and so i think while it's very interesting to talk about this play as like a warning of our future i think it is also important um to understand it as like a clear thing that happened in our past um that not a lot of people are super familiar with and that lucy kirkwood Mm -hmm. doesn't like make pains to show happened in the play like she doesn't talk about that in the play but when she talks about the play she describes how like she was clearly inspired by this because there were japanese nuclear engineers who did come out of retirement to do that work Um, so i think that's Mm -hmm. just like an important thing to know i'm not going to say but that what's most interesting to me because that is like important and interesting the way that plays that use apocalypses to comment on like things that we may not know but should be aware of but I really love about that play is also just this like very slow reveal of information and this like all of these little hints that something's not quite right. Um, like if I remember right, they're very precious about water. Um, there's like they don't have refrigeration or something like that. Like there's all of these little hints that like the world is not the world that we know. And very gradually you kind of come to figure out like, oh, th- things are things are not things are not right. Um like Walden does kind of the same thing for the first little bit, at least where like, you're just in like a a lovely cabin in the woods. Um, and then they start talking about like this uh, populist, 
um, eco group that is anti-colonization and they're talking about like colonizing the moon and it's like, Oh, right. Okay. This is, (laughs) this is in the future. (laughs) Um, Sorry, spoilers, I guess, for Walden. <laughs> for, okay, um, for like the first scene. <laughs> it's true. That's fair. Um, you know, Mr. Burns feels for the first like 15-ish pages, it just feels like friends who are camping in the woods and then all of a sudden somebody comes out of the woods and everybody pulls a gun out and it's like, oh, okay, something is something is different. No, but I think it's interesting and especially I feel like before this year, I probably had different opinions about this, about like how much of the world do we describe when the world is very different from the one that we are used to. Um, But I'm also thinking about like with this plague year that we are having with COVID around the world, um, it's not a thing that we talk about all the time. Like it's on the news all the time, um, but in our interpersonal relationships i don't think it's a thing that everyone talks about a lot um i hope i don't know um but like if you wrote a play that was set now in 2018 um that like had all of the trappings of what our everyday lives are now it would look very foreign and but we would talk about it in very subtle ways and so i think that it's very interesting Um, how well some people have captured that for future plays that like three years ago I would have been like is that how people would react under these very strange circumstances they're living in and having lived through it now yes well and it's also (laughs) it's a nice way to signal just the differences in how in what we take for granted and the things that are normal to us um but I also do think there's something to be said for plays about the apocalypse that make it incredibly clear from the beginning that like this is a play about the apocalypse. And I'm thinking really specifically of Marisol by Jose Rivera, which like, you know, there's this kind of pretty surreal apocalypse scene at the very beginning. And then immediately we do have a scene where an angel in combat boots is like, I'm going to the angel war and leaves to go to the angel war and it's like okay like this is a play where like you know from the very beginning like this is a world that is about to experience massive upheaval there's i think there's definitely room room for both but that is a phenomenal point as you were talking about marisol for a second there i was i had read the play a long time ago and then i was thinking about another of his plays that i've read um references to salvador dali make me hot where like coyote and moon are characters that just show up at the beginning and we like very clearly realize that we're somewhere outside of realism um in rivera's plays mm-hmm. um so an angel in combat boots showing up to say i'm going to the angel war sounds absolutely in line and very normal <laughs> for his work yeah they, the angel's kind of just like excuse me geico kill god you're on your own which is which i mean that's that's what they say yep. an extremely courteous <laughs> angel um uh, but that's actually what's interesting to me about Marisol um, is that it is a um, it's an apocalypse that is founded in a sense of abandonment rather than guilt. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's the the climate crisis or what, but so so the angel is specifically Marisol's guardian right. angel. And that's sort of like the explanation of why everything is so fucked as i recall is yeah it's essentially like the, i i this i your angel have kept all of these bad things from happening to you and now you're on your own and presumably everybody's angel who prevents bad things from happening has departed so it's like this is a world 
that just by its nature will run itself into the ground without intervention. But now you've been abandoned by those who would have intervened. Um, so now there's skinheads who are burning people alive in Van Cortlandt Park. Yeah. And I just think it's because um, that that play was in 1992, uh, Marisol. And I just think it's interesting. You know, so many of our the the play clearly lives, like you said, Todd, outside of realism. And so many uh, apocalypse plays from today, I think not all, but many live inside it. And I wonder if part of that is the kind of uh, the the kind of technocratic guilt that we're all living with and through um, in terms of climate crisis and the kind of. I think I think often we feel the need to explain some of the apocalypse because we have such a clear sense of having possibly caused it. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, but that's just me speculating. I don't know if that's true for everyone. Well, I mean, I also feel like we used to have uh, like if you look at uh, futuristic um, ideas from like the early 80s, um, they are very. Not all, but a lot of them are very like bubblegum utopia and we'll get through it and it's neon and cool. Um, very like Back to the Future 2. Um, and in the late 80s and the early 90s, uh, you have a lot of very like grim, dark, everything will be bad. Like there is not a utopia to be found. There are only pockets of utopia that are probably the wealthy exploiting the very poor. Um and otherwise dystopia for everyone else. And so I think we shift from like futuristic megalopolises where in, in the popular culture, we've shifted from futuristic megalopolises where like you have all of your needs met to like the hunger games and, uh, station 11, um, and stuff like that. That book every person in theater read in March. I know it was so. Uh, I was so glad that I read it before then. <laughs> me too. Um, I had like a friend had gotten it for me for the holidays, and so I read it, and I was like, "Oh, this is like delightful." And then everything started shutting down, and I was like, "Oh no." <laughs> I mean, I think I think the like aesthetic or like the vision of a post-apocalyptic future that the game Apocalypse World encourages is this like grim, dark like. If there, if we have clung to, like, if there is a government of some kind, or if there is like a settlement that operates the way like a town might now, everybody's out for themselves and everybody's inherently acting selfishly um, and everybody's out to get each other. Um, like, it assumes this, yeah, this like Mad Maxi or Hunger Gamesy, like dystopia world, as opposed to a world where like, things get better or like people are inherently good. Mm -hmm. I think something that I find very like soothing or reassuring about um, the world of station 11 is that it assumes that like most people are generally not dicks and that like communal life in some way, shape or form will go on um, even if there are still fringes of like, we do have a death death cult. Like, there's a a, a biblical zealotry death cult that like shows up in that book. I mean, we have those now. We have those now, exactly. Um, 
but it's it's clearly a pushback against this idea of like there is only Mad Max, there is only scarcity and want, and instead there are like <laughs> there are worlds, there are ideas that like people will continue to care for each other the way that people have always cared for each other, the way that all of us have communities that we belong to that clearly care about each other and will help each other in need. I think we do see this in a lot of these plays though. Like I think a lot of them end on a note that perhaps hopeful is a little bit too strong of a, of a word, but like at the end of thirst, you see this family unit, um, no spoilers, but you know, you see the, the formation of a family unit and you feel faith that they're able to endure and continue to recover. Well, who knows about the end of Mr. Burns? Um, the end of Mr. Burns is a triumph. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, society um, is clearly existing if we've moved on to like high art opera, Mr. Burns. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, yeah. No, yeah, I, I, I've said it funny, but I'm actually not joking. It's it's a very optimistic play in that sense. That's valid. Um, like at the at the end of Walden, there is this hope for for a future even if it's perhaps not the future that everybody in that world is advocating for like there is hope for new life yeah like you you i think a lot of these plays have this like seed of you know oh like life finds a way um <laughs> i didn't do that on purpose <laughs> the chaostician strikes again that's me um <laughs> I'm not a professional chaostician. I am a dramaturg, but I also am the embodiment of chaos. I was going to say just chaotic. <laughs> I'm just chaotic. Um, but yeah, I think a thing that ties together a lot of plays about the apocalypse is that I don't, I can't think of any that are like entirely and wholly like gloom and doom. Like they're these very human inspiring stories about people who adapt to their circumstances or, or face adversity and, and try and find a way through. Um, I, I do think that there are, there are some plays that offer a more grim, um, possibility, but I think they exist more in that like cautionary tale sort mm-hmm. of a space. They, mm-hmm. they hope that things will not turn out as poorly as they have for the characters in the play as they might for us. And I think that's an also important, um, like, use of apocalyptic fiction is not just we shall persevere but also maybe we don't need to go through this yeah especially because i think a lot of times you see a tension in these kinds of plays between like people who acknowledge that like we constructed the world that we lived in that currently like has proven to not work um something's fundamentally very wrong with what we were doing um so you see people who are very willing to like make a new world and move forward and, and try new things. And then you see people who are scared and who cling to old structures and old ideas. And I always think that's an interesting tension to find between people who are kind of willing to play the game of the new world and people who are actively kind of resisting it. Um, Like I'm trying to think like that pops up in hurt song that pops up in, in Walden that pops up. Um, we even see this tension between like kind of old world people and new world people embodied in our campaign of apocalypse world. If you look at Vance and Vector, Vance who is really tied to the old world and who 
has a lot of faith in these structures that clearly um, are kind of crumbling around them. And then you see Vector, who is very much like, I don't know of the of the old world. I'm interested in it in an artistic sense. I'm interested in learning about it. But, you know, I'm forging a new path and I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do without any care for for what was. Um, yeah, the tension of past and future, I think, is always a really interesting thing to see in art about the apocalypse, whether it be a tabletop game or a play. What we see both traditionally with like the Christian apocalypse or Ragnarok, I'm pretty sure they hide two people in a tree, um, is that many apocalypse stories are also stories of renewal on a generational level um, and the need to sweep an old world away before a new one can begin. Particularly if you think about the root of apocalypse being like a revelation, um, this reveal of information that allows people to take a fresh start and, and really make things better. It's really lovely. Hey friends, Drama Nerd Nick here, just popping in to say that we're currently running a merch contest. Sharing our podcast or rating and reviewing helps us out a ton, and this month, December 2020, doing that enters you to win t-shirts and stickers from our merch store. Check out the details on Twitter and Instagram at dndramanerds. And thanks for listening. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percy Hornack, and Nick Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at dndramanerds. Check out cast bios on our website, dungeonsanddramanerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.